Welcome to the Not Your Average My podcast, where four Hmong American women working to move our community forward one conversation at a time. So tune in every month with Liz, Mania, Monica, and Katie as we dive into politics, pop culture, and all things related to being Hmong American. Let's get it. Hi, everybody. Welcome. It's been a couple of months since we last recorded. Really excited to be here because we have a really um, special guest. This summer has gone by so fast, so we're really hoping that you've all enjoyed your time off, the sunshine, wherever you are. Um, we've been really busy with work and our summer travels, and we took some time to rest and recharge to really think about you know what we want to explore in this next season. And so today, we're really excited to reconnect and to bring you someone who we've been really inspired uh, about um, just with her work and um, her history. We're, we're really excited to welcome Shang Lord today. Um, we're focusing on Hmong textiles and sort of how social media has really changed the way our community and our generation engages with um, Hmong textiles, Hmong clothing, um, especially with the way that like Facebook's facilitated Facebook lies with Hmong clothes sellers on the marketplace, um, which allows Hmong Americans to be really uh, high consumers of Hmong clothing, right? Um, so that was an interesting topic that Shang actually brought to us. Um, and we thought it was extremely relevant just given, you know, sort of the dynamic dynamics and the political issues around Hmong clothing and, you know, entrepreneurship and fair wages. And we also wanted to, to use this opportunity to explore not only like the history and trends of Hmong textiles, but again, um, just what are those social political impacts, right, of Hmong textiles in the market, um, including supply and demand and how it affects like Hmong women producers. So with that, would love to welcome our guest and co-host to our podcast today, Shang Lor. Shang is a textile artist based in San Francisco, California. Uh, most recently, Shang's indigo wax boutique Hmong textiles inspired mural was revealed at the grand opening of the Sofa Pocket Park in San Jose. So that was really exciting. We'll link that article on our resources page. Um, and Shang's work is also featured at the San Jose Museum of Quilts and Textiles, where she teaches classes on reverse applique. So really, really excited to have you here, Shang. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit more about your background and work and like what inspired this topic? And like, why did you feel like it was important for us to cover it on our podcast? Yes, uh, I grew up in Stockton, California, and got my bachelor's degree in art. And then I moved to D.C., um, and started my career in textiles there. Um, I worked with um, people with disabilities, or artists with disabilities in textiles for a long time. And during that time, I also worked with companies that did uh, wholesale or fair trade textiles using labor from abroad and reselling in the markets here in the U.S. And then... After doing that for about five years in D.C., I moved back to the Bay Area, California, and started my own textile studio, and then transitioned into um, doing textiles as an artist, and that's where I am today. So, Shane, you know, like we, you know, your work has been shared on, like, social media, and, you know, I've looked at, like, your website, and just the work that you've done is so inspirational and you know in one of the articles that i read about you you talked about how like your work is really to examine the asian diasporic memory and explore redescriptions among experience through the perspective of cloth so like what inspired you to focus your art of textiles you know and really draw the inspiration from um your your cultural background or like Hmong art right like what inspired you to do that and bring that into your professional work yeah I feel like uh that's a very complex question and uh let me know if I'm too all over the place but I think I mean part of my goal and as an artist is I think it started when I was young and I've always loved going to museums and seeing textiles. And every time I saw Hmong textiles at museums, it's always from, you know, collections of white people or, and the way they write about Hmong textiles is from, you know, a white person's or anthropologist's perspective. And I always wondered why um, there were no Hmong people talking about Hmong textiles. I mean, as a young person, th those were my feelings. And then, um, as I grew older, you know, the way that 
even among people talk about textiles, I feel like uh, still has a lot of like um, like colonial language. I would say like talking about uh, textiles, mm-hmm. uh, differentiating different clans and things like that. Mm. I feel like um, I think of Hmong as a diaspora, not as like uh, you know different. I don't know clans or uh, having different markers. I feel like so. I, I'm really interested in looking at textiles as um, so. As an artist, I I want to ask first the question: uh, What can we learn from cloth? And that really means also looking at women's lives because I mean, women are the textile makers. Yeah. And I feel like understanding that perspective and um, really activating the voices of women and of textiles would really give us a broader perspective on the Hmong uh, diasporic experience and memory. Um, so, you know, it's it's hard to, I feel like I'm explaining my entire uh, life <laughs> from my no, childhood <laughs> curiosity all the way to my adulthood. Um, in this small segment, but that's a, a brief and complicated explanation, I guess. So I, I think that's beautiful. Go ahead. Yeah, Maria. yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, Monica. Um, Shay, I'm so glad that you that like your story and your experiences are reflected in in the in your art. Um, can you share a little bit about like the vision of the mural that you um, had created for San Jose, like, you know, you talk a lot about women's, you know, women's stories and wanting to make sure that women's voices are heard. So what was the vision for this mural that you created and um, what does it mean for you? Yeah. So um, uh, like I said earlier, I always start with an inquiry or with a question. And for this mural, I, my question was, um, you know, if indeed our textile motifs were previously a written language, um, if it were to be uh, decipherable, what would it say? You know, what can we know from uh, being able to read our textiles as language? And so, obviously, I don't know. And so, but um, when I submitted and finalized my proposal for the mural, it was that weekend of, you know, just like four back-to-back murder-suicides, which you guys also talked about in your last podcast. And, you know, I was really inspired to then put the word uh, Me Too in the mural. And that word is Gutia. Because, I mean, there's no way I can know what the textiles would read. But I feel like that phrase um, of women in solidarity was an appropriate message for cloth made by women. Yeah, I love that. I think that's that's so beautiful and um, so inspiring because, uh, you know, as you said, we've talked often about Hmong women and the lives of Hmong women and like how we can uplift our, our voices, even in the smallest of ways. And so I think it's people may not know that that your mirror was inspired by that or, or motivated by that. Um, And I think it's a good segue into, you know, one of our first questions that we wanted to ask you, Shang, right? Like, we know among textiles is so much more than just bandao, right? Um, And you already talked about this briefly, like it's it's about the woman behind the embroidery, right? The woman's lives that they they lead. Um, So maybe in addition to all of those things, like, could you share for our listeners who may not be familiar with Hmong textiles, like what else or what encompasses Hmong textiles? Like, what does it mean? Is it just like the cross stitching? Is it just the reverse applique, you know, like for you as someone who's like skilled and an expert in this, like, can you explain what is Hmong textiles? So I would say Hmong textiles is a few things. And then if you, feel they are not <laughs> relevant, just stop me. But I mean, Hmong textiles is first a way of life, you know, a way of agricultural life. So it starts with uh, growing the hemp and then growing the indigo and harvesting the indigo to create the dyes, the indigo dyes. And not just indigo, but, uh, you know, the reds in Hmong textiles were also a natural dye. 
and they mix that with indigo to make their purple. So all of that, you know, the growing, the harvesting, the dyeing, um, and then the weaving of the hemp, turning hemp into yarn and weaving that, um, that's all Hmong textiles. And to understand, when you know Hmong textiles, you know, you really know uh, the Hmong way of life. And then... Wow. Yeah, I just want to take a, I love a, it. <laughs> a break and just be like, that was like, you know, really deep on another level that even like I haven't even thought about is actually where everything actually started from, from the ground up to what we actually wear or what people buy. And so uh, thank you for that explanation. <laughs> You're welcome. And then, you know, there's also the stitching, um, you know, the weaving and the stitching, the decorating and the wearing of the monk clothes. And then there's also the more, I feel like, um, not mythological, but uh, the more metaphorical uh, piece of monk textiles is that um, story that I think most monk people know about uh, the motif uh, being our original written language and that when you wear it, it's a sign of um, uh, rebellion uh, because you continue to carry on the original language. Um, so there's, you know, that metaphoric uh, part of Hmong textiles. And I think that really is what brought me to write uh, to you guys about this topic is that I feel like now there's so many Hmong women who are wearing Hmong clothes very proudly. Um, and I wonder, you know, I feel like um, that is deeply rooted in our wearing Hmong clothes as rebellion or wearing Hmong clothes as making a very, very strong statement. But I don't know what the statement is, you know, but it's a powerful act. That's so poetic, so beautiful. Um, <laughs> and I hadn't quite thought of it. I, I always think a lot more um, but like the traditional and the cultural stuff, right? Like, you know, the like what your mom has to give you when you get married and then what you wear, um, like when you die also. Right. Um, I, that to me, um, I've never viewed as uh, like mystical or mythical, but it's, it's another way to think about it. So, so thank you for, for sharing that. That's beautiful. No, I love that you brought that up because I, I forgot about that. That is, that is true about Hmong clothes being, um, you know, diary and then also, um, you are your best in your deathbed uh, to the afterlife. And Shane, I just, um, when you were talking about everything, it just reminded me a lot of like, you know, um, regular Mumbatao and every all the history that goes with it. And a lot of it uh, made me think of like my mom or just like um, my grandma or just people before, because it's it was such a tradition to teach from, you know, one generation to the next. And that's just like their daily work that they did because they had to, it was for survival. And it was also just to pass down what they could. And my bitter part, and I guess like my bittersweet memory of that was that, um, you know, I remember being really little and my mom sitting me down and she was like, hey, I want to teach you how to pump out. And then, um, and I like after like 30 minutes, she was like, oh, I can't teach you because you're left-handed and it's just too complicated. And I can't teach a left-hand child how to do pandao. And so like, I never learned, you know, because, and then like, but then that's, that's what it was. And so that's, I was just like, oh man, like, you know, like, so like I buried all of that behind and I've always had like a bittersweet um, memory of pandao when I look at it, you know, it's like, oh man, it's that history and that tradition and that, you know, um, womanhood and motherly love. But then I think about it, I was like, but I didn't learn it, you know? And like, I like totally gave up on it. And I was like, maybe, you know, now I, I'll restart back up. But then when I got married, my mother gave me my money belt and she hand stitched all of that for me. I still have it. And so it's like the love that I didn't have because I didn't like learn from her, but it still showed when she um, gifted that to me and I'm probably gonna start crying you know but I'm just like oh man like is that that love there is so real and like that's something about like Hmong textile and whenever I see Pondal that always reminds me of like a motherly love and that's just my piece oh so sweet Katie go ahead oh I love that yeah so you know I mean I have so many few comments but um first like you know, I'm, I'm really interested in how to decolonize tech, Hmong textiles. And one of them is like the word dowry. I feel like that's the wrong word to describe the Hmong clothes that are passed down from mother to daughter. Like it's, I mean, I feel like there's no word to translate um, the Hmong word for that. And 
I mean, what we can learn from, you know, Hmong textiles being passed down from mother to daughter to daughter to daughter is that, you know, um, Hmong clothes is precious, like cloth is precious because it used to be handmade. It used to be grown and dyed by your mother and stitched by your mother. And um, even in some regions where there's still Hmong people practicing the old ways, uh, their indigo has become so black because every time it's passed down, it gets dyed again and again to look new. And so, you know, um, a shirt or skirt can be passed down for generations. And uh, what you see is like really, really, really dark cloth. And um, so, I mean, you know, sometimes I think like the word dowry to describe uh, Hmong clothes and the way we pass down Hmong clothes is such a insufficient or not even the right word. And, and then I agree with you. Totally. Like, absolutely. I and I, I like w- would love to dive in a little bit deeper there. So like, you know, operating as like Hmong Americans and, and people who are still trying to like balance that like identity piece, but not being able to have, have words for it. I think it's such a like you you explained that beautifully. So I'm I'm wondering as part of the decolonization of like our, our clothing, our culture, our, our textiles and our history, like what does that mean for like authenticity, right? And like is is it, you know, wearing our monk clothes proudly? matter where it comes from no matter where it's made um or you know like what does authentic mean right um and like how does that play into like decolonizing um how our culture and our history and our textiles have been like produced over time so that's a really tough question i think um i don't know what authenticity is but i think i have an idea of how to maybe get there and I think one way is really to move much, much slower, uh, to consume at a much slower pace, uh, to be more thoughtful about the things that we make and buy. And, you know, uh, to be really regional, you know, to be really, uh, to use, you know, the things that you use should make sense to where you are. You know, I feel like that's that was for me the Hmong way. It's like... Like when you think about how nylon was introduced to Hmong textiles, it's, I think it's from the parachutes that came down during the war, like parachutes are made of nylon. And before that, um, there were no, nylon is like the newest um, textiles. It it didn't exist before uh, the wars. And so, you know, but they, so they had this scrap fabric and they made, the best use of it that they could and turn them into textiles. So I feel like um, that is very authentic, you know, to use what is in front of you to make the best of your resources. And so, you know, I feel like that's one way of understanding why there are white Hmong and there are blue Hmong, you know, there are more people who didn't have access to indigo dye. And so um, they just didn't dye their clothes that much. And then there are other Hmong people who lived very close to more uh, fertile land and had access to indigo farming. And so their clothes were more blue. And so I feel like that is a very authentic way of um, making and wearing textiles is to be very thoughtful, to be very local, um, and to really just consume at a much slower pace. I, I just want to say, Shang, I, I'm learning so much. I did not know that history about nylon coming from like as a product of the war that our people decided to use. But I love how you're explaining like what authenticity could look like. Um, and I, I just I want to dive in a little deeper there because, you know, now that like our community, our diaspora is sort of like all over the world here in America still back in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world, like how do we then use what's local to us, right? Or um, in this consumerist world, how do we then buy less, right? When it is like all over Facebook lives or like, you know, when our aunties and our family members or, or other like Facebook sellers have like family members back 
home or have sellers back in like Southeast Asia, you know, who they're like selling products for here in the US, right? Like, oh, I just have so many questions. Like, what do we do? You know, how do we tell people to slow down? Or like, how do we tell people to like, be more thoughtful about what they buy when wearing Hmong clothes is like such a such a statement, right? It's such a like powerful statement. Like, how do we stop? Or, or is it do we stop Facebook sellers? Or like, that's my that's my like dilemma right now. Yeah, so I mean, first, I have to say, like, I, um, I've never been to Laos or Thailand, and I don't really understand the infrastructure there, um, and how, you know, it works there. But I'm willing to say that, you know, I feel like um, Hmong women and families there will continue. I mean, like making textiles to sell is like such a age old like practice in our community. And um, they will continue to do that in Thailand and Laos for many, many more generations to come. There's no way we can stop that. Uh, That's what we've always known. And that's what they know and they will do. I think one thing I uh, would just say is like, I mean, right now the market is still very Hmong. Like it's dominated by Hmong women, Hmong makers, Hmong buyers, Hmong sellers. Um, And it's great that we are buying as Hmong consumers. Um, And I would just want us to just appreciate that moment and also be very positive and supportive of the Hmong women who make clothes for now because... I mean, I'm afraid that once we stop buying and we refuse to buy, um, they will continue to make those clothes and they will sell it to a different market, you know, and then, they'll, you know, other non-Hmong people will start buying. Um, and at that point, I feel like uh, we would have less of a control over our narrative, um, over our you know, culture, and, you know, the the buyer will change, the seller will change, but the makers, they will continue to be the Hmong women in Laos and Thailand. Um, and so, uh, you know, what I'm really interested in, in is seeing, like, we as buyers really changing the way we think um, in a more positive way uh, and be willing to, you know, uplift uh, the makers and not see them as just boycotting their prices or things like that. I really appreciate that, Shang, um, because I've been, you know, I think some of us have been thinking about, right, like, how do we slow down the buying? Because I think right now the demand is so high and the supply is like, you know, these mass produced textiles that are like machine made. So then to me, I'm thinking, does that still count as authentic textiling, even if it's like machine made, right? I know it sort of ties to this larger question that we've been asking you is like, how do we maintain authenticity and how do we still value the like traditional skill set of stitchery embroidery? Well, I think my <clears throat> th- that question like takes it away. I mean, I mean, I had a couple things. Um, I think what Shang was trying to get at is that like the market will always be there. Um, and so yeah. I just wanted to say, right, like I think it's really powerful that, right, like we have um, you know, Hmong women makers, um, and the buyers are Hmong, right? Because before, right, like, um, our aunts, grandmas, you know, moms, like, would make bandao and, like, sell it to white people, to expats, and that's, like, the way that they could, you know, make money, get cash to buy, like, other goods that they couldn't, you know, get from the garden or whatever, right? Um, it was really important for a lot of, like, the, the refugees and, like, you know, the Thai, um, camps. So, um, to me, it's incredibly powerful that like just the market dynamics have changed and like, you know, with people buying stuff, right? Like you learn like what yaki means and like you learn like, you know, um, the value of certain things. So even though like Monica's talking about like mass produced dresses or whatever, right? Um, I mean, at least I pay attention where I'm like, oh, like this is handmade. So I know like, you know, the, the market values that more, right? Like to get something handmade. Um, cost so much more than something right. that's like made by machine anyway. And so, um, you know, like in some ways, right, like that, that value is still transferred, like even, even if like, um, you know, we're not, we're not buying everything handmade anymore. Um, which to me, like, is a continuation of, of um, authenticity and culture, right? So I wanted to offer that 
I think because Monica, like we have different ideas of what it means to be authentic. Like I think you don't oh, have to be sure. preservationist I, to be authentic, right? Because like no, as long as that's, it's like but that's mom, why I'm, right? I'm asking. Like, well, right. Like I, I'm not fine. saying that yeah. machine made things aren't authentic, but you know, I, I'm just thinking about like, do how do we celebrate that in, in addition to maintaining the values, like what you were saying, like you know, because I think people will, people are saying handmade things are too expensive now. And so they're just going to buy machine made things. So does that take away then like the history and the richness of people who are still handmaking things? And are they going to also like get a place in the market? I I don't, I'm not saying saying. one or the other. We still buy the expensive stuff because we just know it's expensive because, and you know, like, you know, it's what you value and what you can buy, right? (laughs) Don't you feel like that argument is such a, I think that handmade Hmong clothes, it really brings to light the classism that exists within the Hmong community, right? And I bring this yeah. up because I remember growing up, like we wore, you know, like the Hmong skirts, the handmade ones are so amazing, right? Like they have batik, they have cross stitch, they have the dyeing weaving, right? Like Shane, I learned this from you, like it has so much and it's so expensive. But I remember growing up, we always wore like the machine printed Mowling skirts because that was what we could afford. But like the the authentic ones were so the handmade ones were so expensive. And when you have huge mom families, obviously you're not gonna be able to afford a, you know, like a handmade skirt for every daughter. So I think to me, like I'm not saying like, oh yeah, everything should be machine made, but to me, like when I think about mom clothes, like what it is accessible for our community, especially yeah, when right. there are people who cannot afford these mom clothes. Um, and even some of the makers or producers in Laos or Thailand, they're making these clothes, but that doesn't mean that they can afford to wear them or to buy them for themselves, you know? So when I think about like what my mom can afford and what she can, it, it kind of makes me sad because obviously you want to purchase like, the best clothes for your daughters for them to wear in Hong New Year, but you're going to buy the machine made ones because you can't afford, you know, to dress your, you know, to give them like these authentic dresses and I don't know so I I, a part of me is like you know I was never like growing up I was never super proud to wear you know mom clothes but then at the same time I'm also like my mom did her best with what she could afford so for you know printed stuff like is it is it wrong that people want to buy them for for their kids right so I'm I'm kind of struggling with that a little bit uh, but I want to make a point about Bandao, right? Like, I remember talking to my mom and she was like, yeah, like she would sell Bandao in, in the refugee camps and she wouldn't have time to cook for us because they needed money, right? But then at the same time, like the value of it was so low. And now you see mom clothes and people um, have to pay a lot for like handmade mom clothes. But to me, I'm, I'm also like, I'm glad that the worst of women's labor is being compensated well right and i hope that that money is actually going to the women mom women you know producers or the ones who are stitching and doing their embroidery because it takes hell of time to do that i remember like in the states you know like we were my you know my mom and our kids were just thinking about like oh like how can we make money like maybe we can just sell on that and sell it to people but you would spend hours on it and you would get like 50 dollars, so it wouldn't be worth the the labor of it right so I'm just kind of curious to like hear your everyone's thoughts on, on this podcast. Like, would you are are you willing to pay that much for the value of mom clothes right now, right? Because it, I mean, some are going for like 800, 500 or more. I don't know, Shane. Y'all might know more <laughs> than, than, than I do, but I feel like I brought a, a few different points, so I'll, I'll stop there. I do want to jump in really fast because I do want to say that like my first mom dress was my wedding dress. And it's still my only dress that I have that is Hmong. Um, just because like I think that I I've, you know, I've had I think I've just had like, you know, I just d- haven't had a need to buy new stuff and I haven't always had like the prettiest like history with my own Hmong culture too, you know. So it's been like a lot of like growing pains and a lot of things and I, I get where my is coming from. I get where everyone's coming from and like, you know, at the end of the day you do have to do what's best for you. But I do appreciate like if being authentic and being, you know, like women being paid for what they're worth and stuff. Because I remember watching my mom like sew for hours and hours to make those little turtles with all that hand stitch embroidery on the back and stuff. And they would sell at the craft fair for like a dollar, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, like, I mean, it, it took her like, you know, days to make some of those and things like that, or they become Christmas ornaments or something. I don't know, like what, 
white people do with them, you know, but it's like, and so like now when I see it, it's like, it makes me feel good, you know, but then it's like, but then like, I think that's why this conversation is so important. And just talking to Shang and getting like all of this knowledge, you see why it's worth the way it's worth. But without this knowledge, the rest of us as consumers would be like, oh, no, it's not worth it. We're getting ripped off, you know, but that's why like the education piece is so big and maybe because I'm a teacher, but like, I think that that's what we need to do is like, you know, educate our own community and really look back on it. And like within like, even like, you know, like nieces who are just like a couple of generations younger than me, you know, they're just, a lot of them, they don't know the history behind it. You know, they're just like, oh, that looks pretty. That will look great on IG. Like, you know, like things like that, you know, but once you really start like, um, learning about it, I feel like I've been like almost crying this whole episode and I'm not even like big on to like you know textile and things like that but because it makes me think of like my family and it makes me think of like just the history and like the suffering that has been with it and so that's why i think like on a deeper level and maybe because i just feel very emotional now but like you know but i think that like i think it's so important to um have this conversation and to get this out there because we're lacking a lot of it i mean like I don't know, maybe she, maybe she write a book or something, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I would buy it, you know, um, but these are important things. And like, even right now I'm thinking about it and I'm like, oh, I want to bring this into my classroom this upcoming year. You know, I really want to talk about it because like, you know, um, I think that's my, my coworkers say, I wish I talked about like, you know, like, oh, we want to bring in more Hmong history. You, can you talk to us about like Hmong textile or like the story cloth? Cause that's what everybody has in the classroom. But I'm like, man, I don't know nothing about this. I'm the wrong person to talk about things like this. You know, they're like, well, don't you guys believe in story cloth? Doesn't that tell you like your history with all those pictures? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess we could follow these pictures and see what it says. Or, you know, they'll, they'll bring to me literally the, the cloth. And they're like, what does this mean? What does that mean? I'm like, I don't know, you know? And so like to actually get this knowledge um, feels really good. And I want to like, you know, go ahead and continue to share it and stuff. And so that's just my piece on it. But um, you do you consume how you want to? What works for you? I think that's so right and so powerful, Katie. So, I mean, all those points are like really good points. Um, and I'm going to start by saying something I feel like will cause a lot of people to hate me. But when you're buying something handmade, if it doesn't hurt you, if it doesn't hurt your pockets, then it's not enough. And then secondly, I mean, printed uh, fabric and machine-made fabric are also very beautiful. And... You know, there should be no stigma to buying machine-made or printed uh, textiles. Oh, Shane, thank you for that. that. That is yeah, so true. Thank you for yeah. making that statement. <laughs> no, you clearly, I think you clearly expressed, I think the stigma that I, I that I felt kind of growing up wearing, you know, printed skirts, right? But um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like 100%, like there shouldn't be stigma attached to people showing how proud they are to be mom. Right. But I, I and I, I want to make this point in that, like, but at the same time, I guess we are, you know, moving towards like the sustainability movement. Of course, I I absolutely understand that. Do if you can afford handmade, if you can afford to pay people what they should be paid for, like definitely do it. Right. Like that. And I, and I bring this point because I feel like this like bundle market is so heavily dominated by women. And oftentimes, like, you know, if we're not paying women what they're worth, then like they are just being um, like they're not able to support their families. Right. So I don't know. I just kind of think about like my mom and, you know, like the struggles in the refugee camps for our family. And then thinking about like the women who are making these clothes for mom American consumers and who are not being paid well in Laos or Thailand as well. Yeah. And then I just want to, you know, kind of go back on what I said earlier. I mean, like the market is always going to be there and it's such a great moment now that we are the buyers but if we you know cease to be the buyers um there will be new buyers and you see this for you know any other textile culture in the world you know when you think about i was just in turkey you think about turkish rugs you know it's collected here in the u.s and people pay tens of thousands of dollars for persian rugs but you go and visit their country and their own people can't buy uh, their own rugs, right? So yeah. So you know, it's it's important for us to you know be appreciative for this moment and also see everyone who plays a role in this um, you know circle 
market uh, and support everyone involved in this market at this time. I'm very impressed that Manya knew the difference between handmade and printed. I just knew they were all pretty. So I was like, I just want a manga. I don't care. I was like, I don't know, probably six or eight. And I was just like, oh, okay. It's like red and green and blue. And, you know, like, I just want to look pretty. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing too, right? It's like what Katie said. We don't, we didn't know a lot of these things growing up or we didn't take the time and we didn't understand the value behind it, right? Because I think all of our grandmas and aunts were like, right? But then like, we're kids. Like for me, I'm like, I don't want to sit down and like, for five hours. Well, no, our so- grandma would sit us down and be like, you know, and my mom would be like, because like my mom would make all of our clothes, right? And my grandma would too, but dude, we're like children. And I'm like, I don't want to do this. Like, I want to go play, you know, which now looking back, I'm like, so regretful of and like, I wish I had taken the time to do it sometimes. But were you even old so, enough? Were so you I think it's I like hearing mom and them tell us, right? Like, because this is something I, you should I know. Only I had that story because grandma's right? like, 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 but you need to learn this because or I need to teach you because good. Yeah, like your mom, your mom works too hard. So I'm going to teach you. So grandma, grandma, like, told me that. Well, but, thank goodness yeah. you guys weren't left-handed. <laughs> <laughs> but and I think that's also so sad, right, Katie? That like your 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 mom or like they like as a left dominant person, left hand dominant person, like you you didn't get to learn because of that like barrier, and and so I don't know, just a lot of things come to mind when we're, when I'm thinking about like accessibility and like who had the privilege to learn or or you know who had the ability to learn because. Um, I also know not everybody's families knew how to sew, right? And not everybody's families like could do it, right? Um, yeah. Like, anyways, why, why do y'all think people are so interested in like brown <laughs> clothes and textiles now? Because I felt like growing up, when I used to like sew on that with my mom, I wasn't obviously an expert, but I feel like you did that when you were kind of fobby, right? Like there was that stigma to like <laughs> mom clothes, and it means that you're a fob. But now, like all these cool people are wearing mom clothes and doing their photo shoots and all of that so to me I'm like what the heck like I'm obviously the the perception about around mom clothes and the relationship with mom clothes have changed but I'm also like y'all used to call these people fobs and now everybody's into it so to <laughs> me I'm like <laughs> My, yeah, how's I, find that, I find that really valid though but then I think it's also because of everybody's own journey too you know I think that it's because like we're rediscovering ourselves our culture and embracing the things that we took for granted or the things that were stigmatized or just to like to fit in to mm-hmm. assimilate you know because like you know we can talk about that we can talk about like just more than just like textile we can talk about like you know our language our history our names just everything you know it's because like we want to be so white to fit in and our parents told us to be so white to fit in and now we're like all in our 30s having midlife crisis because we don't know who we are where we came I guess from I'm just a it's saucy, like katie yeah right, right right no but it's like it's totally true because like that's why like you know when when everyone talks about all these things i always feel like i have like a really like bitter history with it because it's mm-hmm. like you know i was always taught to like forget all of that and so now i'm in my 30s and i'm trying to embrace all of that but yet like you know when i look at my closet or I look at my stuff i still only have my wedding dress you know that mm-hmm. i probably can't fit into because you know this girl grew but um but like you know like but it's like you know like that's where i'm trying to like like find my balance too it's because like you know like i'm like willing and finally willing to embrace like my history and my culture but where do i start where i can be authentic and where i'm not just like consuming and buying everything at like mong village because you know that's like my neighborhood right but like i haven't bought one single piece but then i like i was we were walking through it like um a couple of weeks ago a weekends ago with my husband i'm like hey you know i need to buy something he goes why and he, i'm like it makes it really hard to be a teacher in my classroom when I don't show up like my students and not because I want to be fake, but I also want them to know that they can start embracing who they are at an earlier age than I started to, you know? And so he was like, so are you doing it to be hip and cool or are you doing it because you feel like you want that history to show? And that was a very you know authentic question. And, you know, I thought about it and he was like, so are you going to be like those that just wear part pieces of the outfit are you going 
head to toe in your outfit, you know? And I'm like, I think that's just like really complex, you know? And so on our way out, I was talking to him about it. And he's like, you know, because my, my husband's been in the military for so long. And he's like, I hate those people who try to make their clothes like the military. You know, they just wear different pieces. But I'm like, you know, but that's a oh. uniform. And so it's disrespectful to wear like different pieces and all of that. But it's very fashionable. And so like we got into this whole debate and neither of us are like, you know, like, this is not our expertise, nor are we like, we can, we can barely dress ourselves in the morning to match, you know? So it's sort of like, man, this is like the wrong conversation to be having. But I get what he's saying because, but then I was like, but then they modernize like, you know, like cami, camel, camouflage clothes and people wear it as a trend. I, even I wear it sometimes, you know? Mm, and then, you know, but mm -hmm. and then he's like, but I hate it when people put on like a uh, dress blue jacket just to look cool because, you know, um, like Kanye West or something like that, you know? And he's just like, you know, that's just so, so disrespectful to the history and to all of that. And so I thought that it was like really complex and I'm like, man, I suck at this. So we're just going to drop it. And because we don't agree on anything anyways, but the, he made up, he made some really valid points. And so then I thought about it. I was like, do I still buy like a Hmong jacket from Hmong village? So I can wear it for my students so they can see that every day that it's normalized and it's you know okay and it's cool so you're not a fob like you know what my Neil was talking about you know that that it's it's acceptable or like how do i be authentic to myself and to everyone around me and so that's something that i've been struggling with so this that's why i think i'm so emotional during this yeah. like episode yeah i was just saying like everyone's journey with mom clothes is so special and so different and you know for me it's just like you know some people started early on in their lives like loving mom clothes and some people at a later life and I don't think that that there's anything mm -hmm. wrong with like you coming to terms with appreciating all of the work that goes into making mom clothes and uh, you know everything related to mom textiles Katie so I I, I was just kidding like <laughs> silliness like I was just being salty but <laughs> I'm just kidding with you <laughs> but you know I think that's like a really valid point that's I I wanted to like ask that to Shang, right? Like Shang, why do you think there is this influx? And and I would agree with you, Katie, that I think right now it's everyone reclaiming and appreciating and being proud, right? That we are Hmong and like we can wear it proudly however we want. Um, but I wanted to, you know, see what you thought, Shang, about like why there is this influx right now. And you already talked about this, like there's a market now, right? Um, there's always going to be a market and that's, it's fantastic that it's Hmong people buying from Hmong people. But, you know, to, to Katie's point, right, as as our textiles evolve, like, is our modernized Hmong clothing still Hmong textiles, right? Like, is there a point when it goes too far? Like, nowadays, they're like Hmong clothes with like, you know, like fashionable mesh, right? Or they're Hmong clothes that are like mixed with like Chinese, you know, meow and like Vietnamese textiles. So like, is there a point when it's like not Hmong anymore? Um, and, and this is more like of a... Of a maybe a fashionable like question but I, i'm curious about what your thoughts are there and like as the market expands what is still Hmong clothes or what is still considered Hmong textiles yeah um i mean i really love the point that katie brought up and i'm actually afraid to say what i'm going to say because so many people will hate me i promise but i mean like and maybe you shouldn't put this on the podcast but i think like fashion is the enemy of uh, art and culture mm. and so you know that's oh, why snaps mm. wow i want that yeah, we got to dig deeper there that, but yeah, that is a really strong statement yeah let's dig into it i, I mean love it. so i feel like the conversation that katie had with her husband is about what is fashion and what we consider culture and sacred and you know how to distinguish between the two and what are we wearing when we're wearing clothes are we wearing fashion or or are we wearing culture and, you know, I feel like as soon as something is named fashion, there's just nothing sacred or personal or cultural about it. It's just fashion. Um, so, I mean, like I because I've been making textiles for so long, I, you know, have dealt with this problem, this tension between textiles and fashion for so long. So that's my personal opinion for myself. Like, I'm not a fashionable person at all. You see me, I'm just wearing, like, black sweater and black pants. <laughs> no, I really appreciate that, though. You're a true minimalist, you're saying. And you're, like, you know, you're you're buying and wearing what you what you can, right? Or, or do you want to, like, expand on that a little bit more? Or, like, I'm just really not comfortable in the world of fashion. So, um, you know, because... I don't know. I don't see. I mean, I feel like 
I mean, I, I love all the Hmong women who are going into fashion design because that is, uh, you know, that's a profession. That's a very, very, you know, um, hard profession to get into. And I admire them for doing that. Um, but what they're making is fashion, you know, and I think there's a fine line, maybe a fuzzy one between fashion and um, Hmong culture. Uh, you know, just like, I think, you know, when I identify myself as a Hmong artist, I feel like that's my profession, but I don't think that my work is Hmong culture, right? Um, it's just, I don't know, mm. like, there's just a little, and sometimes it's hard to talk about it or distinguish the two, you know, fashion and culture, but I mean, you guys yeah, tell you, me. You, <laughs> No, no, you, no, I, you I appreciate really you made good the, that distinction, though. Yeah, yeah I think, Liz, do you want to turn I was going to say, well, I love that you said that, and you shouldn't be afraid to say that. Um, but I think maybe the difference is, um, uh, like, what you're talking about is, like, fast fashion, right? And, like, consumerist fashion, because I think some people, right, like, people who, who do, like, high fashion and, like, couture would be, like, what I make, right, is a piece of art because there's only one of it in the entire world, right? And, like, that's why, like, it's so expensive and exclusive because I, I think to me, like, it goes a lot back to what you were talking about, how, like, you're, like, if you buy something handmade, like, you probably didn't pay enough for it, right? Um, you know, because a lot of it is, is, is so priceless, right? And, like, that's why, like, you know, you want what your grandma made for you or what your mom made for you, um, but maybe, like, that's, that's the difference and, like, what you're getting at is that, like, you know, it if if something becomes commercialized, right? Um, it takes away from the culture, and I think that is very true because, like, commercial capitalism, like, really does kill culture, like, in many ways, right? Um, but maybe like that's just the 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 distinction um, because I, I feel like some other people would be like, well, if there's only one thing of it in the world, then you know, right? It's it's its own artistic thing, and like. Um, so I wonder okay. if, Liz, to your point and, you know, sharing your statement, like, can we be conscious consumers while appreciating, you know, like, long fashion, right? Like, mo the, these, like, long clothing fashion trends? Um, or does that mean that we're not conscious consumers? And maybe it's not black and white, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Like, how can we be conscious consumers while also appreciating these long clothing fashion trends that are always up and coming. Yeah, so maybe, um, I mean, what I was thinking while Liz was talking, um, maybe like culture is something that you practice um, right. and fashion is something that you buy. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there are a lot of us who want to have a, you know, fashion be also what we practice or like what we wear. Um, also aligned with what we practice and so I mean there's no issue with that so and I kind of agree with Shane that like you know you can have fashion inspired by culture but I think that you know like a piece that is culturally it's, it's how you use it and what you do with it you know because culture is a practice it is you know like what you do that is like what culture is and you can still have fashionable pieces inspired by your culture and so I think that's where like the distinction is and that's how I also see it too I mean how are you gonna culturally use it unless it's a story cloth and you're gonna walk around and you're gonna tell everybody your story that's on your shirt or something you know but I think that that's you know where like my distinction is personally and you know I I, I just like that and I appreciate that you are willing to put that out there and I, I agree with it and I think like we also need to also not be so offended by that either it's not that if one is better than the other or like one is right or wrong it's just like you know sometimes we gotta call it what it is and it's like you know it's um fashion inspired by culture which is nothing wrong with it and I think it's beautiful and should be worn and you should be able to show it and be proud of it and then you can explain about it too you know you can educate people and teach other people when they ask you about it but first we got to be educated by Shane so you know so we can actually talk about things like this I'm really glad you mentioned that Katie because I, I think that's sort of what I I hope we were getting at or you know highlighting that maybe the language that we use isn't really important and right? how we distinguish 
Hmong textiles, Hmong clothing to like Hmong fashion. And so I I hope that Hmong fashion designers or, you know, people who use our cultural textiles that are, you know, indigenous <laughs> to us, that, that they are very careful, right, on how they phrase and label their clothing items. I think that's sort of where like this question stemmed from for me, because like I... I would just wanted to ask, like, is Hmong fashion Hmong textiles? But I love the way you phrase it, Shang, that like culture is what you practice and that it, it doesn't necessarily mean one or, yeah, that Hmong fashion is Hmong clothing. I don't know if I articulated that right. And I know we had like some other questions just about like when other mass producers make Hmong clothing or use Hmong textiles and and make it like fashion, you know, like, should we be impressed? Should we be or should we be disappointed with it? Um, so I, I mean, I think um, kind of going back to just like the oh no. ongoing, one of the ongoing themes we, we've been discussing is, you know, like the market now being very long is I feel like, um, you know, like that is one answer to appropriation is like, how do we um, take hold of this moment in which we do have the control over demand and uh, supply um, and how can we be a better designer, be a better seller, be a better maker than those clothes that have appropriated our culture. You know, I mean, like, I just can't see a way where we can prevent it from happening, but we can do it better as uh Hmong designers, uh, consumers, and makers. I think that's, yeah, I think that's so important. And I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that. And I think it's a good segue into like non-Hmong people utilizing our patterns and like selling our textiles and selling our designs. How do we combat that? Should we be impressed when like our clothing and textiles makes it onto the mainstream, right? When, yeah, like Target was selling like Hmong textiles, like infinity scarves, right? Or, or those Hmong modern scarves a while back. And then also like Liz listed the like the Iponine London dress that Prince Harry's ex wore to his wedding. Like it was a Hmong tribal dress, right? Or, or the latest, I, I guess, controversy slash trend is when Tom's started to sell Hmong inspired uh, Tom's shoes, which was designed by a Hmong shoe designer who works at Tom's, right? Which I'll admit, like, I was all about it. I have a pair. I'm still very proud to have it. Um, but, you know, curious, like, what that does, right? Because in this capitalist <clears throat> society, like, we know Hmong people are not benefiting from it. And like, you know, the only person who benefited it, right, or that we wanted to support was the Hmong designer who works at Tom's. But Tom's is reaping all the benefits and all the profits, right? So do we stop, you know, do we support that? Um, I think you brought up like multiple um, issues um, in the same um, breath. So I think it's it's a very complicated and complex uh, multidimensional question. I think there's first like um, the relationship between Hmong and uh, Hmong, um, you know, Hmong wearing Hmong clothes. And then there's a relationship between Hmong people and uh, the market or like, you know, the capitalist like fast fashion market. Um and then there's also like another topic of like um, like just Hmong culture existing um, among a global culture. So um, there's a campaign, and I think it's actually a nonprofit. It's at least a hashtag and a campaign called Give Credit. And you know they're all about like just giving credit. Mm. Fashion designers giving credit to the cultures that they you know are inspired or whatever from. Um, and to a lot of people, like, to a lot of people, like that's enough, you know, like they want to see, you know, like one thing I always think about this doesn't have to be in the podcast because it's not related, but it's like the Japanese kimono. I mean, like everyone knows the Japanese kimono and even my weaving friends, like they love weaving kimonos. And I would love for like the Hmong jacket to one day be as like ubiquitous as a kimono you know because the Hmong jacket is like a beautiful sustainable shirt that is like a zero waste type of fashion shirt um and so like just giving credit I feel like is enough for a lot of people you know they love to see I would love to see 
the word Hmong be credited anytime uh, it's used as inspiration for big designer brands. I think that's awesome to hear. And I think what hopefully we could work towards too. And, and, and maybe what I was getting at is like, you know, how can we support mainstream, like our work, our history, our, our culture in mainstream industries while like maintaining the authenticity and sustainability pieces. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in really fast on that. Um, I think it also goes back to where we were talking about if it's culture versus fashion, because um, you can still appreciate both. And even if it's like, you know, Tom benefiting off of Hmong culture or or Hmong inspired, you know, fabric, that's still fine. I mean, like, what do you plan to do with your shoes anyways? You know, so it's like, it's I still appreciate it. And it's like, you know, that's a piece that I wear. And I'll be like, hey, it's Hmong inspired. I see it on mainstream. I'm okay with it. And like, I think what Shane was saying, give credit. And he gave credit. And I appreciate that. I mean, do I know that it's going to support like, I don't know, like the freaking people in Laos? No, probably not. But if we really think about it, what do we consume that actually supports people? Not a lot. So it's like, you can have your troll fit on Twitter and stuff like that. But, you know, I mean, let's really take a, a look at ourselves and see what we are doing personally on a personal level too. So, I mean, I think that giving credit is enough and you also got to draw your own personal lines. What is culture? What is fashion? And how do you plan to do that? And so I'm okay with having phone inspired stuff if credit is given in draw your own line first before you can go out there. You determine what that is to you and what it looks like. And then from there, it makes it a lot easier because you can let things go because you're just like, well, it's just Hmong inspired. So I'm okay with it. I love it. No, uh, I had a follow up to something you said, Shang. Um, can you tell us more about uh, why you think the Hmong jacket is zero waste? Yeah. So, I mean, the way that the Hmong jacket was originally sewn, you know, that boxy Hmong jacket, not a lot of people know how to sew it, but it's really sewn from like a single rectangular piece of fabric. And um, you can cut in such a way that you can have, well, it's two rectangular pieces of fabric because one is the lining and the other is the outer piece. But it's sewn in such a way that there's zero waste, like you don't waste any piece of the cloth. Um, and that's why it's very boxy. I mean, it's amazing to see it being done. But once you've seen it, it's like, why isn't this jacket, you know, a universal jacket? <laughs> That's so cool. I didn't even know that. And now I know why our, our clothing are so boxy. Because as a kid, I was always like, mom, this doesn't fit me. It's like too big for my arms. Um, and it doesn't look pretty. Or, it, you know, as a little girl, right, You're you're like accustomed to like western fashion so i'm like oh it's not form-fitting on me and it's like too big but that really helps me understand better like why our clothes are made the way they are so thank you for that shay i mean the same ideas of like the kimono jacket or like a lot of like um textile cultures from like you know before modernization it's just like zero waste fabric um but you know the kimono jacket is very boxy but it's something that uh, has evolved over time to be a, you know, precious object. And so we have a positive view of it. And I think we haven't yet have a positive view of the boxy mom jacket. So on that notion, I, I'm really curious to kind of hear your thoughts on like, what you hope the narrative that we're telling through our Hmong textiles will be for the future? Because, you know, in our conversation, we talked a lot about like storytelling and, and how our clothes or just mock textiles really carry uh, the history and stories of our community, our people. So, you know, relating to that, like, what what do you hope is a narrative that we're telling or will tell through our mock textiles? That is a really tough question, Manya. <laughs> I I hope that um, whatever the narrative is, that it's it's um, woman loving and woman empowering, and also um, you know, it, it really treats uh, cloth as precious. Um, so really quickly, slow cloth is cloth that's all about the process. Uh, so, you know, like um, when we think about fast cloth or fast fashion, you know, we don't think about who made it, uh, what it takes to make it. It's so fast. It happens. Uh, it changes all the time. And slow cloth is this idea that um, we consume slower um, and we're more conscious and aware of, of the process of how cloth is made. You know, like the answer, I mean, the question about how can we support 
this market or like Hmong makers, Hmong women makers, um, and support uh, Hmong fashion or Hmong textiles. I mean, I think like one way, for example, is to um, demand, be a better uh, consumer, better demander. And when we demand like Hmong, for example, like Hmong pandamo or like Hmong clothes, uh, our demand should be more reasonable, more uh, sustainable based. Um, and what that looks like is like just less stitching, maybe, you know, like less uh, fashion that requires, um, you know, less labor or, you know, like now the more demand there is for Hmong clothes, the more elaborate the Hmong clothes are becoming, the more decorative. I mean, we see like, for example, panama on the on the um, cuffs, on the collars, yeah. on the everything, um, and it shouldn't be that way because it's so hard to make it. So we demand more decoration for less of the price, and uh, that's not sustainable, and that's not loving our Hmong women makers. And so, you know, how do we design a fashion or Clothing that also supports and appreciates and loves our Hmong uh, women makers is, I feel like, kind of the narrative or like um, really the, yeah, the narrative that I would love to see and be carried out. I love that. And that's such a great example yeah. because everybody now wants to spend them all <laughs> on the Facebook, yes. uh, what is it, live Facebook Live, whenever people send on clothes. But yeah, I, I, I love that that narrative. And, you know, I feel like I've seen that in your work, especially with the mural. And I, I'm so appreciative of your insight into, like, how we can continue to empower women and also tell women's stories um, and the worth that they bring their labor as well. So really appreciate that. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, you know, the interesting thing is the whole time we were, we were talking about this, I, I wanted to ask you if, like, you know how to make the hemp cloth because even though like my mom didn't know how to make it she told me about it and I've always been very interested in like how to keep that alive because she's like oh you know the indigo like you only make that from the from the hemp stuff and you have to make the hemp and it takes a really long time too and like you know there are very very few people in the world who can make like authentic Hmong hemp cloth now um, even though you can get the printed indigo skirts yeah I don't know um who's making hemp cloth anymore, um, especially handwoven. Um, I feel like we've lost that uh, practice a long time ago with the, um, you know, the war and all. So, I mean, in order to make hemp cloth, you need a stable place. You know, like in order to weave hemp, you need a place um, to set up your loom. You need to be able to stay and make a living in a place for a long time and so that means like having stability and I think Hmong people haven't had that in a place in a long time that's why um, you know we've turned to buying uh, cotton cloth um, and you know Hmong people don't have a history of growing cotton um, and so we know that uh, all of our cloth are or most of our cloth are bought from markets um, so, you know, I feel like that's one of my ways of like, what can we learn from cloth? Uh, what does, yeah, what can cloth teach us is that the lack of hemp cloth in our culture now comes from a lack of stability. Wow, Shang, I just want to um, first off and say thank you for being on our podcast. And I personally know that this episode has been um, such an emotional journey for me because I think I'm just like reflecting so much after learning so much from you. I just take, you know, I just look back and like just even now hearing that, you know, it just puts me in like a really deep place. And maybe I'm just, you know, like I said, a little bit emotional, but I'm just like, wow, you know, like with all this history that I, you know, we didn't know. Um, we were taught to forget or never taught, you know, it makes everything now so much more precious. And I just appreciate you being on our show um, and giving our all of our listeners a little piece of our own culture that we've probably never heard of before or took the time to learn. And um, I I just want to echo everyone and, and, you know, give you the opportunity, Shang, if you have any takeaways or final parting words for our listeners 
um, before we sign off. Otherwise, just want to say thank you again from like the bottom of our hearts profoundly. We are so grateful for your time, your expertise, and just for your willingness to share your knowledge with us and with like the greater community. Like, Thank you all so much. Um, I have one thing to say to Katie. So every time I teach my class now, I always offer a left-hand option. So I, I'm right-handed, I teach right-handed, but I always make sure I have, um, you know, uh, a portion of the class where I teach how you can do it left-handed. Um, that's you. wonderful. No, no, no. I, 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 I really oh that. That's so amazing. I mean, I think, and that's such an important accessibility thing. So go no, ahead. No, I just want to yeah. say that I think that, like, especially within our culture, it's always been such like you know, right-handed, male-dominant. Like, if you were anything other than that, you were like always cast away and still. But I, I really <laughs> appreciate it, and um, you know, I mean, that's great to know. And then uh, as being a teacher to you know, accessibility and just being able to differentiate to meet everyone's needs is such an important part. Um, that we all need to embrace and just do as part of our daily selves and stuff. So I, I, I would love to take your class if I was like closer to the Bay, but maybe one day when I visit, we can. Yes, I invite you all to visit my studio once you are in the Bay Area. Beautiful. Um, and we will surely link your studio and Sheng's work in all of our resources. Um, so we want to thank all of you uh, listeners for joining us today and especially Shang, our guest who was so willing uh, to share her knowledge with us today. Um, we hope you all learned something new today. And, and if you had anything to take away at all, we hope that you are a more conscious consumer, um, especially of Hmong, Hmong textile, Hmong clothing, and just a more conscious and appreciator so um those are our parting words thank you all so much for uh tuning in with us today and we look forward to having y'all uh, join us for our next episode next time thanks everybody bye listeners thank, thank you. you bye bye folks thanks. thank you all right